Hello, I'm Jesse Walls from Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church. We're a church seeking to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus. Thank you to Life FM for continuing to host us. Today, as we look to God's Word, our reading is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. So you can begin looking that up now. This sermon was recorded live at Eagle Hawk Presbyterian Church. After reading the passage, we'll hear the children's talk. So, if you have children, make sure they're listening. Then we'll go to the sermon. So, let's hear the reading of Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I'm looking for someone. So I have my binoculars. Let's see. Do you think that I can find the person that I'm looking for? This person, as I look, is older than me. So I don't think I'm looking in the right spot right now. I'm seeing all of you, so it can't be any of you. So if I look out there, where is this person? This person is a woman. Oh, I can see a few. There's some more. Good. 
this person is wearing her head down. I can see a few. Let's see. This person is wearing pink. Again, I can see a few people who match this description. This person is holding a baby. There she is, right over there. Finally, I was able to find her. And you guys were able to work out who I was talking about as I was sharing those clues, weren't you? You were looking around and thinking, oh, I think I know who it is. Were you doing that? Yeah? Do you know, as we read the Bible, Trevor just read a particularly tricky part of the Bible to get your lips around and to get your tongue around. There's lots of names that Trevor was just reading. Do you know why the Bible has so many names written like that, one after the other after the other? Do you know why? It's, it's Jesus' family tree, that's right. It's because God had made so many promises in the Bible. And God had promised that there was a person coming. There was a person coming who would save his people from their sin who would be king over all the world. And so the Israelites, they got out their binoculars and they started trying to find this person. Where is this person? And so God kept making promises and giving more and more details. God kept giving more and more details so that they could find this person, so they could recognize him when he came. And so he promised to Abraham, I look in my list here, Abraham, he promised to Abraham that this person would come from him, be part of Abraham's family. And so all of a sudden, we get our binoculars out and we start looking at Abraham's family and wondering, oh, is this the person? No. Is this the person? No. Is this the person? No. Mm, okay. And then God gave promises to David. And he said, it's, he's going to, going to come from your family. So it goes from Abraham and then to David. And so they get their binoculars out and they're looking for this one to come. This one who would bring blessing to all the world, like he promised to Abraham. This one who would be king of God's people, like he promised to David. And so they're looking and they're looking. And each king that comes through David, they wonder, ooh, Is this the one? No. You know, there were some good kings, weren't there? Do you remember there were some good kings in Israel and Judah? And there were some pretty rotten kings. Do you remember that? Yeah. Have you been reading about that at home, maybe? So they kept looking. They kept looking, trying to find the one who God had promised. Until finally, we get to this genealogy. And there, Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Jesus is in the right family. And Matthew is about to write a whole book about this one who's come. And he's going to say that this Jesus is the one who was promised. This Jesus is the son of Abraham who was to bring blessing to all the world. 
This Jesus is the son of David, who is going to be the king who lives forever. This Jesus is the one who would save us from our sin. You know, that's why we have this long list of names that are hard to pronounce. So that we would see that Jesus is the one that God promised. Is there something that we do every year to celebrate the fact that this person came? What do we do? We celebrate Christmas. We're in December. All the shops are decorated. Are your homes decorated? No. No. Oh, no. Our home is decorated. And there's still more to go, but we've got our Christmas tree up. And, you know, we've got a Christmas tree right there, which isn't decorated. I think after the service, maybe you should all help to decorate that tree. How do you feel about that? Does that sound good? After the service, you can help decorate the tree because we are going to celebrate that Jesus finally came. After all of these generations of people, Jesus finally came. So let's pray and thank God for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus did come and we thank you that he is the one that you promised. Help us to trust in him and we pray that he would forgive us for our sin and that we would always live with him as our king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pray as we think more on this part of God's word. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that every part of your word is useful to us. It is by your scriptures that we are made wise for salvation. All scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by you, our God, and it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we ask and pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts even now, that we would hear you, and that we would delight in these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think of out-of-touch rulers, Marie Antoinette probably comes to mind, or if not her name, then at least the quote that is associated with her. While Queen of France, the story goes that she was told that the peasants were starving and so she and that they didn't have bread, and so she said, let them eat cake. That's right, let them eat cake. Now, it's debated whether it was actually her that said it, but the phrase now lives on in infamy. The story of rulers and the rich who have no idea of life on the other side of the tracks, that's nothing new. And it's there today in all of our chick flicks as the rich try to interact with the normal world and you see these rich people expecting the luxuries that they know to be readily available and they're surprised when they see people getting by perfectly fine without them, not even really wanting them, not even thinking about them. We think of the rich and the powerful as being out of touch. They don't understand the, the bite of inflation, the pain caused by interest rates. They'll always get the best medical treatment, the top lawyers. They're in the room 
when decisions are made. But there is someone in power who isn't out of touch, who understands us completely, who knows our world, its hardships, its trials. He knows our pain. He knows loneliness. He knows what it is to be an outsider. He willingly identifies with those who feel shame. As we enter into the Christmas period and and as we first meet Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, we meet a king who's not isolated in his ivory tower, unmoved and uncaring toward his subjects. We see the king that is the friend of sinners. That's our main point this morning. Jesus, the king, is the friend of sinners. And Matthew tells us about Jesus' qualifications. He tells us in our first heading, Jesus is qualified to be king. And in our second heading, we see he's qualified to understand. The king is the friend of sinners. He's qualified to be king and he's qualified to understand. And so first, he's qualified to be king. If you have your Bibles open, have a look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we can't see it in our English versions, but that word translated genealogy is actually the word in Greek, it's actually Genesis. See, this is a new beginning for God's people. As we begin Matthew's gospel, we should be expecting big things, world-shattering, world-reshaping things. And not only is this a book about the genesis of Jesus, but we see that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Matthew is probably written especially for the Jews of his time. Matthew, all throughout his gospel, he's constantly quoting the Old Testament prophets and explaining that Jesus is fulfilling their words. And here, Matthew includes the two biggest names in the Jewish imagination. Here are the heroes, not merely because of what they did, but because of the promises that God made to them. See, as soon as Matthew mentioned their names, his readers would have been reminded of the covenant with Abraham. That through him, through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Humanity had already been promised back in Genesis 3, a serpent crusher. Because the serpent had uh, promised, uh, had successfully tempted Eve, The world was now cursed and everyone was condemned to death. But God straight away had promised a serpent crusher who would destroy him, destroy his works. And then as we read through the story of Genesis, Abraham is promised that through him, through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The serpent crusher who would rescue people from sin and from all the consequences of sin, from the curse that came from sin, that person would now come through Abraham. See, Jesus is the son of Abraham. And he's the son of David. 
David was promised that a king would come from his family who would live forever. As the promise developed in the Old Testament, this eternal king, we find out, won't just rule over Israel, but he would rule over the whole world. Imagine. Imagine being a Jew of the first century. All these promises, they had been given millennia ago. What did they have to show for it? The one who'd bless all the families of the earth hadn't come yet. Isaac didn't do much. Jacob didn't bring much blessing. Joseph managed to save uh, many during a famine, but then he died and his influence was gone. The nations haven't yet received an incredible blessing through Israel. So far, it's been very lackluster. And then they keep following through their history, remembering that God had made an incredible promise to David From him would come a king who would live forever. All the promises that God had made so far in the Bible were now concentrated in that one person, the serpent crusher who would bring blessing to all the nations, would live forever as the good king of God's people, the descendant of David. But what happened? That was the promise, but what happened? Solomon started off so well. He built the temple. Israel's territory was the largest that it had ever been and it would ever be. He was visited by kings and queens. The queen of Sheba was amazed at his wisdom and at his wealth. But it all came to an end. Solomon the wise became Solomon the fool. The nation split and eventually the Davidic kings needed to give all their wealth, all their gold as tribute to more powerful nations. Their wealth was gone. And then in comes Babylon and they destroyed the temple, exiled the people. And since then, there hadn't been a king on David's throne. See, their history was one of grand hopes, glorious promises, but of Devastating disappointments. Because now, these readers, the first readers of Matthew's Gospel, they are under the thumb of Rome. Their nation had been dominated by the Babylonians, and then the Persians, the Greeks under Alexander the Great. They had a brief moment of independence as a nation again, but then in came Julius Caesar. But now Matthew introduces us to Jesus. And the first thing that he does is demonstrate that Jesus is qualified to be king. Exploring your family tree has become popular recently. But for most of us, this kind of thing is quite boring. It's boring reading. So boring that when one translator was translating Matthew... This first part of Matthew ended up being the last thing that he did. He realized when he got to the end, oh, I I didn't do the first bit. And so he he translated it. And then as was his custom when he had finished translating a certain section, he would read it to the people that he was with so that they could understand. So he thought it was boring. But the people that he was there, uh, that, that were there with him, were transfixed 
as he read. See, all this time, they had been mocking Jesus, thinking that he was make-believe, but now here he is with a genealogy far longer than any of them could produce. Isn't it fascinating that the parts of the Bible that we maybe find boring are the parts that can actually bring people to faith? It just goes to show that when we have an issue with the Bible, either it's something that we don't like or that we find boring, we actually see that the problem is with us, not with the Bible. Matthew is highlighting that Jesus is qualified to be king. Could there be anything more incredible than that? What a masterful way to begin his gospel. David's name, that's mentioned five times in these verses. He is the key historical figure. And we see there in verse 16 that this is all orchestrated by God. Jesus is described differently to everyone else. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. See, again, it doesn't come across as obviously to us in the English, but the Greek is highlighting that God has deliberately placed Jesus into this family. God caused Mary's pregnancy miraculously. Unlike all those other names, all those other births that happened throughout that list, this was no natural event. And Matthew will make that perfectly obvious in the next passage that we'll read next week. Jesus is qualified to be king because he's from the family of David. Our hopes should rise as we read his story. The original readers were waiting for the one who would bring blessing to all the nations and who would be, who would live forever as king. So Matthew tells them and he tells us the search is over. Just a quick note. Maybe you know there's a difference between this genealogy and the genealogy in Luke 3. A few of the names are different. It seems to trace through a different line and then get back to the same place. Now, there's a few possible reasons for that. I won't go into the details of it. My personal suspicion is that Matthew is tracing through the line that would actually, of the people who would actually be king, the, the royal line, and then Luke traces through the physical line. But there are a few options as to why there's this difference. But while there are a few options, and while some skeptics want to grab onto those differences as a reason to reject Jesus, reject the Bible, I think this actually highlights how trustworthy the Bible is that we have. Because you see, the scribes down through the centuries, they didn't try to change it. They didn't try to correct it. They left it. They trusted this was God's word. We can trust the transmission of God's word. We can trust what we have. And we should give the writers, the original writers, we should give them the benefit of the doubt that they knew what they were doing by giving different genealogies. They had a certain purpose for it. Even if we can't quite work it out today, They had a reason for it. We can give them the benefit of the doubt because so many other things line up. Jesus is qualified to be king. And in our second heading, 
we see that he's qualified to understand, which is why the king is the friend of sinners. Now, what makes Jesus qualified to understand? And what is he understanding? Well, first, he understands shame. Whenever you read through a genealogy in the Bible, it's a good idea to look at the pattern and then try and see if there's a break in the pattern. And if there is a break, there's not always, but if there is a break, it's usually important. The pattern here is, as you read it, you see X, the father of Y, and Y, the father of Z. It's it's male-centric, which isn't unusual for genealogies in the ancient world. But in places here, it mentions women, doesn't it? And you'd think that if you were writing the genealogy of the son of David, the promised eternal king, you would include the names of some heroic women of the faith. You'd maybe mention people like Sarah and Rebecca, maybe Rachel and Leah. Instead, Matthew mentions Tamar in verse 3. Tamar appears in Genesis 38. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, but God put her husband, Judah's son, to death because he was wicked. And so Tamar was given to her husband's brother as a wife, as was the custom. And her brother ended up being put to death too. And when she finally realized that Judah wasn't going to give her his third son, like he was supposed to, so that she could have children, which was the expectation of women, she hatched a plan. While Judah was going on a trip to shear his sheep, she disguised herself and pretended to be a prostitute. Judah was intimate with her, and when she became pregnant, as as she had planned, the whole story eventually came out. That's not the kind of story you want in your family tree, is it? It's certainly not the kind of story you want for the king to have in his family tree. And then we read a couple of verses later, verse 5, and we see Rahab. And while Tamar pretended to be a prostitute, Joshua 2 says that Rahab actually was a prostitute. More, she was a wicked Canaanite. The people who were so wicked that God sent in the Israelites to destroy them so that he could give Israel the land. Would you want all of that made public knowledge? We'll skip over Ruth for a moment in verse 5 and we'll go to verse 6 where we see David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Isn't it interesting? Matthew doesn't call her Bathsheba. Like We know what her name is. He doesn't call her Bathsheba because he wants us to remember that story, that story in 2 Samuel 11. The great King David, who should have been off at war with his army, instead he's lazing around on his roof, which acted like another room back then in that culture, and, and he looked out and he saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, bathing. He lusts, he calls for her, she becomes pregnant. David tries to hide it, but he can't. And so he made sure that Uriah, her husband, ended up being killed in battle 
This is the moment where everything starts going downhill for David, and Matthew highlights it for us in Jesus' genealogy. Sin and shame are there in Jesus' tree, family tree, highlighted for us. He's qualified to understand your shame. And while he didn't sin, he understands temptation. He, we're told, was tempted in every way. He knows what it's like. He knows the seductive nature of temptation, the sweet promises of pleasure and of safety that it it gives us, that it makes. Jesus understands. He understands you in those moments at, at work where maybe you've gone against your conscience. Maybe you've signed on to a diversity statement celebrating ungodliness or some sort of confusion. Maybe you're expected to act dishonestly in your workplace to get the sale. Or maybe in the workplace you've been a gossip. And whatever it is, there you are at work and you are consumed with with guilt and shame. Are you filled with shame because you are constantly giving in to the lure of pornography. See, that's a common problem for men. But because that's the stereotypical thing, it's the common problem for men, it means sometimes that the women who get caught up in it feel even more shame. Because it's not traditionally a female problem. Is it your angry outburst which has you ducking your head in shame? See, shame is the universal human experience. Is it drug use or divorce or adultery? Is it sexual desires going against God's law? Are you confused about your gender? Have you had an abortion, paid for an abortion, been there and uh, caused someone to get an abortion? Or is it something that's been done to you that you're ashamed of? Are you a victim of sexual assault? Has someone degraded you and made you feel filthy? Jesus is king and he is qualified to understand. Jesus the king is the friend of sinners. You can come to him knowing that he he is compassionate. He is kind. He came to destroy the work of the serpent, to bless all the families of the earth, to bless you, to wash you fully and completely, to take away the stain that no amount of effort on your part will ever wipe away. Jesus is the king, and he's the friend of sinners. He's the friend of the ashamed, and he's also qualified to understand the outsider. Ruth, who we passed over in the genealogy, she was from Moab. She was an outsider. And people from Moab weren't meant to become part of the people of Israel because they had tempted Israel to sin in the wilderness as they were wandering through the desert. We're not sure about Bathsheba herself, but her husband Uriah was a Hittite, another Gentile who came into God's people from the outside. Rahab was a Canaanite. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be an outsider. He wasn't welcomed by the religious elite. He was opposed and hated 
He was plotted against. People doubted his paternity. Jesus is qualified to be king and he's qualified to understand. We can feel like outsiders in all sorts of places and for all sorts of reasons. We might be the outsider at school, feeling like we have no friends. Maybe we're an outsider at work because of our beliefs. We could be the outsider in the family. Or maybe you even feel like an outsider in the church. And I hope not. But Jesus knows that pain. He's qualified to understand. He can be your friend. See, that's why he came. He came to be the king who is the friend of sinners. He left the glories of heaven and came to the lowly cattle shed. He came that he could be the king, the friend of sinners. He deliberately entered a family full of a messy mix of the honourable and the dishonourable, of wicked and faithful people. He came to a young virgin woman, knowing that his conception and, and his birth would be considered shameful. And why did, he, why did he do that? So he could be the king and friend of sinners. Not only to understand us, not only that, but also to save us and to lead us as our conquering king through the terrors of death to deliver us safely through God's judgment so he could be our friend and lay down his life for us. This Christmas, we remember the coming of our king who is qualified to understand us and more than that, to save us. Have you been saved by the one who takes our shame upon himself, who takes the outsider and welcomes him into the deepest fellowship possible? Jesus is the friend of sinners. Do you know him as your friend? Because if you do, you can turn to him knowing that he knows you. He knows what you are going through. And you can come to him knowing that you will receive his compassion and his grace. Let's come and let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is qualified to be king and he is qualified to understand. He well and truly understands our feelings of shame, our feelings when we are the outsider. We pray that we would turn to him, rejoicing that he is our friend, that he not only understands us, but he went to the cross for us out of great love for us. Give us strengthened faith in him. Draw people to faith here who don't yet know you. And Lord, fill us with joy, even in the hard times, because we know that Jesus has taken our shame. Jesus has died our death, that we can live. We thank you for his coming, and we pray 
in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm Jesse Walls from Eaglehawk Presbyterian Church, and I pray you've been blessed as you've spent this time in God's Word. Next week, we'd love to have you join us in person for our service at 10am. I hope to see you there. And as always, if you'd like to make a comment on what you've heard today, you have a question, or you're looking for a church, then please get in contact with us. Our website is eaglehawkpc.org.au. You can also contact us through Facebook or Instagram. God bless you.